0: The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Thank you all for joining us today. My name is Toral Patel and you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome back! Thank you for joining me and Anthony in another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Anthony, how are you doing today?
1: I'm feeling pretty good. The weather's getting cooler and everyone is very busy.
0: Yes, I agree. Definitely like the change in the weather, for sure.
1: Thank you for asking that question, Toro. So on today's episode, we have two special guests who are joining us and continuing the conversation around a topic related to diversity and inclusion. In our last episode, you may have remembered that we talked about the topic of imposter syndrome in terms of what it means, our experiences with this concept, with Toral and I, and also how it has impacted and shaped us in terms of the workplace. And so we're extremely excited to talk more about this topic with our guests, Jennifer Micah and Jessica Crum, on today's episode. So Jen and Jess, thank you all for being here today. Can you please share with our listeners a little bit about yourselves in terms of your role here at Cornell, the pronouns that you use, and a brief kind of description of your career path that has landed you here at Cornell?
2: Sure. Thank you for having me, Anthony and Toril. This is Jen, and I go by she, her, hers, and I am the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management and the Cornell SC Johnson College of Business. I have been in this newly created role for about a year and a half, and prior to this role, I served as an assistant dean in the West Campus House system, and I've been at Cornell for about 12 years. Prior to Cornell, I was living in Northern California, working in higher education administration. I have a master's degree, an MA in education with a special emphasis in multicultural training and development, and I am a PhD candidate studying education and social justice. How I got to where I am right now is I have a strong passion for social justice education, and I've kind of weaved that into everything that I've done prior to the current job that I have right now.
1: That's amazing. Awesome. Congratulations. A PhD candidate. So that means you're almost done, right?
2: Ooh, We'll talk about that more later okay okay well i know
1: candidacy is like a big thing yes, right in the phd yes. dur- i am dur- abd
2: so. and yes i'm a candidate
1: okay perfect yeah. perfect awesome and last but not least
3: perfect my name is jess chrome and talk about imposter syndrome going behind jen i'm like dang You're right <laughs> but i love jen so it's perfect and i'm super excited for all the success that she's experienced thus far my role at the johnson graduate school of management is the associate director of diversity and inclusion specifically supporting our MBA candidates and faculty and staff. So I like to think that I have the best job in all of Sage Hall. I get to recruit students and I also get to be a part of their student experiences. I love, love, love everything that I get to do. Um, The job is hard, the job is emotional, the job is laborious, but it's challenging and I get to impact the lives of students. I've been in Ithaca. I like to count my time by winters because I'm from Texas. So um, going into my fourth winter, it's going to be okay, Um, (laughs) y'all. That's what I tell myself um, every single winter. And the way that I got to Cornell, I have been in higher education for all of my career. I like to make the joke that no one wakes up saying, I want to be an enrollment management professional, right? Like, that's not what you do at six years old when you're making up different career paths. But for me, being a first-generation college student and having to navigate that path with support and with resources, I immediately found a continued value in education and a an opportunity to help other folks who were like me or similar to me in different ways navigate the process of getting into school and not only getting into the program, but also being incredibly successful in these programs. So I worked in higher education in Texas at my alma mater for quite some time and then took the position to work in the MBA space here at Cornell. So it's been great so far.
1: Awesome. And did you say your pronouns? I oh, may have no, that. I didn't. Oh, okay, my goodness. Great, my yeah.
3: pronouns are uh, she, her, hers. Yes.
1: Awesome. Thank you both for sharing. So before we get started on this conversation of imposter syndrome, I do have a question of the day for all of us to answer. So now that we've been all formally introduced to the listeners, we're all going to answer this next question. So it's a tradition that we do for every podcast episode. and nobody knows what the question is other than the person who creates the question or brings up the question. So in that case, it's me again, (laughs) but next time it'll be Toro and then I won't know what the question of the day will be. So the question is, name a recent success or accomplishment that you take ownership of and what made it so successful? I think this is a really good question, especially in the context (laughs) of imposter syndrome. Sometimes when we experience imposter syndrome, we don't Or it's a hard or difficult thing, rather, for us to take ownership of something that we actually put a lot of effort in. So I'll go first, actually, because mine was fairly recent. So I just did a presentation in Miami about developing a diversity, equity, and inclusion training strategy. And the topic was something that this organization I used to be a part of in Miami when I lived there, I was asked to present on this topic at this summit that they host every year. And so particularly with this topic, I was so stressed out about it that I really didn't put all of the components of putting the presentation together. till I want to say two or three days before I actually had to do the presentation. Now, mind you, I also had my work responsibilities and I had other things to do. So I found it very difficult to just sit down and dedicate time to putting this presentation together because I felt like I it wasn't so much that I didn't know what to say. I just felt like I wasn't competent enough to be able to speak on this topic and so that was the biggest challenge for me and I actually expressed this to the organizers afterwards that it was something that I just could not get over I could not get over the fact that like here I am presenting on this particular topic I just started this role where I'm doing something similar right in terms of helping develop trainings and understand what strategic thinking towards looking at trainings could look like around diversity equity and inclusion and I told them about it afterwards but literally the first thing he said when he saw me and I was about to say this comment was, he's like, the fact that I opened the door, everyone had their phones out, taking pictures of the very last slide that you had on your presentation. Clearly says something about the content and about Mm -hmm. what the people really took away from that particular presentation. Nonetheless, I still felt it throughout the entire presentation. But the fact that he then also told me, one of the organizers told me, there were senior level folks, executives Mm -hmm. in that space. It was just this whole sense of like, Wow. Completely from imposter syndrome to now feeling like, oh, my goodness, I own this. Yeah. This is something I can actually speak on. I felt confident about it afterwards. It's something that I'm like, okay, I just need to now sit with it and say, like, that's something I overcame. And that was a successful presentation that I did. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's great. hmm
3: Yeah. So this one is a little bit personal for me. So uh, as you all know, I'm pregnant, and I'm super, super excited to be a mom. But my journey to motherhood was untraditional, which I think is kind of becoming the new tradition, right? Like infertility is just a thing that is out there. And I think there's a little bit more support around how you journey into the space of motherhood so for myself and for my husband we were able to successfully navigate the ivf process which is incredibly i mean it's just it's emotional i mean that is the it's emotional it's heavy it's expensive it's all of these things is it gonna work is it not gonna work is this my last chance all all of these things right and um i feel like i most struggled with imposter syndrome in my identity as a woman Am I, you know, do I really count because I haven't been able to have a baby? All of these different things. And when we successfully navigated IVF and we found out we were pregnant, I still struggled with this identity of, did I cheat? Like, is this not the right way to navigate this? Or, you know, I just had a lot of really crazy thoughts in my head. And over the last couple of weeks, as I've shared this pregnancy with so many people, I have been... Completely amazed and entirely blessed by so many people who have just celebrated this pregnancy alongside myself and my husband. And I think that's the biggest piece of support that comes with imposter syndrome is seeing all the people who celebrate you as you try to like journey through what you believe is not what you believe to be inadequate right so for me over the past couple weeks everyone's just like oh my gosh you're you're showing or pictures how are you feeling everyone checking up on me and on us and I would say in the past couple months I've really leaned into this way the truth my truth walking in my truth that yes I am a mother it doesn't matter how it happened it doesn't matter when it happened and with all of the support that we've experienced thus far and all the people who have celebrated alongside us, those are the things that help me to journey past imposter syndrome of, yes, I am a mom and it doesn't matter how it happened. If IVF didn't work and we adopted or whatever journey we had to take in order to bring a baby home or to have a child in our space, that's the journey that we were going to take in order to be parents. And so I would say over the past couple of months, and as we went through this process, that would be my biggest success: is leaning in and owning my own truth. That I am going to be a mother to a beautiful baby boy in the next couple of months, and I couldn't be more excited about that. So, yeah. Congratulations.
0: That's amazing. Congratulations. Thanks, thanks,
1: thanks. And just just to clarify, too, um, you said IVF. Can you just clarify to our listeners maybe what IVF stands for? Yeah.
3: yeah. So um, I'm not a doctor, and I'm going to be honest, throughout this entire process, they kept throwing all of these letters at us, all of this, you know, medical mumbo-jumbo. So essentially what we did was I was on medication for quite some time, took all the shots, all that good stuff, and essentially the doctor will go in, got my eggs, all of my eggs that were viable, my husband's semen, put those together outside of our bodies, and then put the fertilized egg back into me. So that's the IVF process. Um, Maybe that's a little too graphic. I don't know if that's what y'all signed up for. Thank you for sharing the process. I was just wondering
1: if you could just let people know what it stands for. Yeah,
3: IVF is in vitro fertilization. My bad.
1: It's all good. Thank you. Well, (laughs) there's so many
3: different letters out there, IVF, IUI, and so there's so many different things. But I will say, that throughout this process being an employee of Cornell University was instrumental in our process I mean the insurance the support everything that's there this process can be financially debilitating or a barrier for many folks and I mean honestly I don't know if we would have been able to do it without the benefits that we have here at Cornell so we're super thankful so we might name this this kid's middle name might be Cornell you never it might know be Cornell. no it's not gonna be but.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's Jen here I think my story goes back, I will tell the backstory, but it is relevant to something recent to your question. Okay, okay. yeah, yeah. So the backstory is, is I started this position in February 2018, it's a brand new position, and I was hired to basically build a program and an office from scratch. I was very reluctant to take the position to begin with because I wasn't confident that I would have the institutional support to do the d work that needed to be done. And all of us in this room working d and we know that we need that support system. But David Wooten convinced me to take the position, and I did, and I was very grateful for him and to have his guidance and leadership in my first few months on the job. David recommended that I look into University of Michigan Ross Business School and look at kind of like what they were doing and they were hosting a diversity week an annual diversity week and so I was like oh that's a great idea you know maybe I should try that at the Dyson school and so I did it and it was great but the second time around I started planning in like December January and I had this idea that I wanted to kind of bring the workplace to our students and our students are very driven and very motivated by their future careers. And so I wanted Diversity Week this year to be directly relevant and applicable to their future careers, and I wanted them to learn about what's going on within d in the workplace. And so I invited seven corporate partners to come to campus, and they did various workshops and then Anthony, thank you very much for also doing a workshop during our Business Club Summit. It was awesome, on Alloship.. Yes. And so I would say also that in my work in the past year and a half in laying this foundation, it's I had to do a lot of groundwork with students in gaining their trust, mm-hmm. and also um, using students and their peer networks to kind of like get people to come to events so like on the graduate side i think that students are naturally inclined to come to these things on the undergrad side it's a little bit more challenging Mm -hmm. right so like we'll always offer food but that's not often the best Mm -hmm. incentive right Mm -hmm. to get them there so I tried to really, like, develop these relationships with students and trying to get them to get their peers involved and interested in coming to Diversity Week. So it was very, very successful. We had several workshops that had over 110 participants. The feedback that's come in so far has been very positive. And i have just always going into these things. I always have this dread and this fear that nobody's going to show up Mm -hmm. or that it's going to bomb or that it's like – You know, and so I'm coming out the other end and there's a lot going on that week outside of diversity week as well that I was dealing with. But coming out on the other end, I'm just very Mm -hmm. glad that it was successful.
1: And let me just say, as somebody who went to a couple, I believe, two or three additional events during that week, it was awesome. It was extremely successful, in my opinion, just to see the engagement, not just from the students, but from all the faculty Mm -hmm, and staff mm -hmm, who were there mm -hmm. to support as well. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Kudos to you on that.
0: Okay. So I am actually going to say that I've had a pretty successful month. I had two major projects that I accomplished, but the one that I want to talk about is related to diversity and inclusion. I was challenged by my supervisor. So just to give you guys a little bit of backstory, Mm -hmm. we received an email from our recreation services with the monthly challenge for March, Mm -hmm. You know, the walking challenge and so forth. And she forwarded that email to me and said, hey, can we do something like this for diversity and inclusion? So- For about a month or so, I tried to do research to see what other organizations out there are doing Mm -hmm. um, and if there's any types of challenges related to D&I work. And what I found was mostly, you know, like slogan contests Mm -hmm. or, you know, photo contests and that kind of stuff. So I had to dig deep to come up with something that was, like, challenging. And so we implemented this within the um, division uh, that reports to Mary Opperman. Mm -hmm. So everybody that reports to her participate or whoever wanted to could participate but essentially what we did was come up with four challenges a week, four different challenges a week related to diversity and inclusion. So each member had to form a team. So you can form teams up to four or five people. And everybody on the team had to complete two of the four challenges. And so they, they would receive an email Monday morning with the challenges of the week. They have to complete the challenges, submit a survey at the end of the week. Then the following Monday they get four new challenges. And so we did this for an entire month. And every week we picked a winner. But it was a great way for team building is one. But two is learn about all of the resources we have here on campus. Also put them out of their comfort zone in terms of D&I work it was just a great opportunity for people to learn outside of a classroom setting mm-hmm. um, and so that was it was very very successful we had over 100 participants um, wow. in the challenge 26 different teams um, and so it was just it was I just felt very proud of it it was something completely different nobody has ever done that kind of stuff before so it's just something that I'm very proud of and it was I believe it was very successful it definitely great. was awesome. as somebody who can great. attest to your work
1: <laughs> 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 yes awesome Well, thank you all for answering the question of the day. Yeah. And now I'm going to hand that over to Toril to introduce our conversation specifically about imposter syndrome.
0: Okay, perfect. So, Jen and Jess, I'm going to ask you just a general question to start the conversation. How do you both define imposter syndrome?
3: I think for me, it's just not feeling like you're good enough. Like Anytime you walk into a space and you feel like you instantly start comparing yourself to everyone in the room or you instantly start finding a a way in which to measure how you are not good enough in some capacity, right? And um, imposter syndrome for me has looked very different in a variety of different settings, right? And I think it can show up in places that you least expect it, right? Like places where you thought that you would be 100% comfortable. I mean, even right now, when I think about like, oh my gosh, like all of these successful things that you just talked about, imposter syndrome, my answer wasn't good enough talking about being a mom, you know what I mean? So I think that it can show up when you least expect it. And it definitely can, it impacts you. you, you just start double thinking, triple thinking about things as folks are already moving on to what you're actually focused on. So for me, imposter syndrome is just the idea of not being good enough and finding something to measure against that that reinforces that idea that you're not
2: enough. I would echo everything that Jess just said.
0: And I would add one other thing is feeling like you don't belong. Mm -hmm. So on the last episode, Anthony and I discussed both personal and professional experiences of imposter syndrome. So what are some of the challenges that you've either heard, witnessed, or experienced when it comes to overcoming or acknowledging imposter syndrome? back to my PhD.
2: Mm. So tough. So I am doing my PhD for myself. I'm not really doing it for a future career. I don't want to be an academic. And I actually know that I definitely don't want to be an academic after doing my PhD. (laughs) I like doing research, but I like doing research on my own terms. And I don't want to go on the tenure track and be a professor. So it's really, it's really for myself, and I had, I had looked around for about a decade for a program that was focused on social justice education. There's one in the United States at UMass Amherst, and you have to study there, and I'm just not in a position where I can not work full-time and move. And so I had kind of given up on that idea, and then I found out about my graduate program, which is through Lancaster University in the United Kingdom, in their PhD program in education and social justice. And so I jumped on it. I went through my coursework. My cohort is from all over the world. There's lawyers, there's people working in NGOs, higher ed folks, social workers, K through 12. So there's, you know, a bunch of us doing a lot of different things. And it was a very supportive group. And then once I passed my equivalent to the A exam and I became ABD, I... I'm like all alone and I have this narrative going through my mind like oh my gosh I can't do this like I cannot do this so I've written my first three chapters I have three more to go I collected my data two years ago I've been sitting on my data for two years and just not like being paralyzed like not being able to actually move forward in this so I had this hard heart with my advisor at the beginning of this semester because I wanted to take time off and he was like look If you really want to finish and get this done, you need to continue on and do it. Because if you take time off, there's a chance that you might not come back to it. So here I am. I'm doing it. I took a class here at Cornell. Cornell, by the way, offers a lot of awesome classes for free. I took a class on Atlas TI, which is a qualitative data software tool that you use to help with coding your data. I have... 200 transcribed pages single space pages from my focus group interviews and so it's overwhelming it's a lot of data but I feel like for me and kind of like overcoming imposter syndrome with my PhD is like looking more of like a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset so fixed mindset means that I believe that my intelligence is fixed, I can't get any smarter, I am who I am because of my genetics. Whereas if I change my thinking to a growth mindset and looking at that my intelligence is malleable, that I can actually like Mm. with hard work and determination, I can actually push through this and get it done. So I'm determined. Now I'll let you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Please do, I wanna read that. When I finish. (laughs) That's awesome. So
0: what can I ask you just a quick follow up question? Yeah. What what do you think was the, the one or two factors that helped you go from the fix to the growth mindset? I think part of it is I think I'm at the point of no return now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, for real, because I have put in so much time and work and money into this. Mm-hmm. And I'm this far, I feel like if I would have been like, you know, this isn't for me during my coursework, then that would have been fine. And I would have walked away. But now I feel like if I don't finish, then that's on me, mm-hmm. right? That's like nobody else. That's totally on me because mm-hmm. I'm like almost there. I also will say that I have a good peer support network, peers who have their PhDs and EDDs, and they're kind of like pushing me and helping me. and And it's good to know that there's other people who have felt this way or who are feeling this way that I'm not alone in it, so yeah.
1: And so you said ABD, that's all but dissertation? Yes. Okay, could you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure, so
2: when you do a PhD program, at least my PhD program, you have coursework that you have to complete and then you have to complete your comprehensive exams and then you have to do like a proposal for your dissertation. And so once you pass all that, Then they put you out into the world, and you're all alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have your advisor. But you're basically (laughs) all alone on your own time frame doing your research and writing up your dissertation. Mm -hmm. So it's like advancing to candidacy, so that's why I'm a Ph.D. candidate, not a Ph.D. student. That's what it means.
1: Thank you for sharing. Yes. And
2: I will say one other thing that I have to, like, because doing a Ph.D., so I'm in my 40s and never – I personally would not ever recommend you waiting until mm-hmm. your 40s to do a PhD if you, want, if you want to do a PhD. However, I do know other peers who are in their 40s who have done their PhD in their 40s and even 50s, and it's great, you know, so great. For me in my life, I have two very young, high-energy children that drain my energy, and I work full-time. And so it's difficult for me to carve out time mm-hmm. for the PhD, whereas... If I were smarter and had done this in my 20s or 30s before I had kids, life would be a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always do things the hard way. I always wait and do things the hard way,
1: so... I, that really <laughs> resonates with me because I'm also the same way, too. And I also think that that's such a, a characteristic, too, mm-hmm. of, like, that imposter syndrome, right? It's like, I don't have the time or mm-hmm. I can't do it because I have X, Y, Z commitments. But then I hear stories like yours where I'm like, oh, my goodness, but actually I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm already making the list in my head of things I should be working on, especially because, I'm you know, I'm single. I don't have a partner. I don't have mm-hmm. children. But yeah, here you are doing that and working full time. I'm like, you know, doing the comparison thing, right? But I yeah. do think yeah. that it's something that a lot of people who experience this, like, imposter syndrome also say to themselves, right, they're like, oh, if they could do it, I should be doing that too, right, and so it's not about the comparison piece, right, as Jess said, it's Mm -hmm. about just whenever you are ready to achieve that growth mindset, to be able to do what it is that you want to achieve and be the best version of yourself.
2: Yeah. One thing that you said reminded me of a, I guess, like a, a, maybe a symptom of imposter syndrome, I don't know if that's the right word to use here, but I feel like I kind of need to collect these things to, you know, to, mm-hmm. like, legitimize myself, like, to yeah. to make what I do valid. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. especially when you're working in higher education yeah. and you're working with professors, if you don't have Ph.D. after your name, right. you know, you, you know, so yes. it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so that's another that's another component of imposter syndrome. Right. This Definitely.
3: Yeah. I think that that's a great segue into the example that I was going to use because for me Whenever I walk into any meeting or any space here at Cornell, I am a young black woman and I'm just like, well, three strikes, I'm already out. Right. I am a black woman and I'm proud to be a black woman. Right. And I know that that identity will sometimes make people feel itchy and that's a them problem. That's not a me problem. And I constantly have to check myself to remind myself there's nothing wrong with being black. There's nothing wrong with being a woman. There's nothing wrong with being young. There's nothing wrong with not having a master's yet, right? If I can name it, if I can call it out and start to speak my own truth and reaffirm who I am, I mean, even in that moment of saying those things, I'm like, yes, I am proud to be a Black woman working in this space and doing what it is that I'm able to do. And I think that's the... Every day or every moment or every hour step that I have to take in order to overcome some of the itchy situations that exist in culture and in our society today of I can't lose pride in who I am because it makes someone else uncomfortable. Because that's when we take five steps backwards. As I think about imposter syndrome, I come from Texas, and so there's already that stigma of I'm slow because I'm from the South, and I'm just like, I'm from Houston, which is the biggest, you know, fourth biggest city in the United States, you know what I mean? So I don't have a horse, and, you know, (laughs) and that's okay, right? But for me, I would use this example of coming into the Johnson School and supporting MBA candidates. I have a Bachelor's of Science in Education. I've always been passionate about education and helping others, and that's one of my strengths is being able to amplify the talent that I see in other people and being encouraging to them. But at the same time, I struggle with that every single day of encouraging myself and reminding myself that I am just as qualified as the person with the PhD sitting next to me to support students, right? And the way in which I combat that every day as I sit in meetings with people who have had incredibly impressive careers or have all of these letters behind their names because they are incredibly educated is to tap into my board of directors. These are my friends and my squad of people who remind me of all of the great things that I have accomplished. And I think it's really important to have a close group of friends or, or support system or mentors or Sponsors that continually remind you that you are equipped to be in those spaces. And I had a really good friend remind me of like, well, Cornell makes mistakes, but they don't make mistakes that often. And do you think that you would be in this position if you weren't able, and do you think that you would continue to excel in your career, or advance in your career, if you weren't equipped to do what you were doing? And that, sometimes I have to lean back into that and, and trust what folks are telling me, because if you leave it to me, I will outthink what they're saying or double think or triple think that I'm not good enough. And there are moments where, you know, Jen is working on her Ph.D. and I look at her with so much admiration. I'm like, this woman is killing it. She is killing it. She's a mom. She's got kids. She's got a partner. She's doing diversity work. She started this diversity work on her own, like it's shaping. And this is hard work that we do every day, doing working in the diversity, equity and inclusion space in and of itself is hard work work.
1: Absolutely. It's hard. hard it's much.
3: hard. And it's very messy. It's yes. so messy. And you have to walk on eggshells. And to, to the point that, that Jen made earlier, you are constantly defending what you know to be true mm-hmm. to folks who are looking for quantitative data and want to know the numbers mm-hmm. and want you to prove what it is that you already know. And in this space, it's, it's really hard to do that because a lot of the work that we do is very much so qualitative it's relational it's all of the things that don't really fit well with Quote unquote, like science or real live tangible success stories, right? Like, you can't, me- it's very hard to measure the success of DNI, but it's very easy to measure the success of admissions or career or student services. How many students are you matriculating or yielding? How many students are getting jobs? How many students are graduating? You can pull that data all year long, but in the DEI space, how many folks have you helped reduce their participation in microaggressions? How do you quantify that? Right. And so as you're doing this work and as you're sitting in these rooms and making decisions and really trying to advocate for your students or advocate for your staff or advocate for your faculty, you're also having to advocate for yourself that the words that I'm saying are true. The words that I'm saying are right. And so for me, when I'm in those meetings or in those spaces with people who are incredibly smart, I have to go back to the things that my board of directors have said to me and said, you know, this is not a mistake that you are sitting in the rooms that you're sitting in. And sometimes and probably for a long time, you may be the only woman in the room or you may be the only black woman in the room or you may be, you know, I'm not even 35 and I'm sitting in all these meetings and, you know, people are asking me my thoughts. And there are oftentimes moments where I'm just like, man, I'm gonna put my foot in my mouth. I should just be quiet. But that's not who I am, right? Like, I am very vocal. Jen knows this. I am very much so. I oftentimes have to apologize or send a note after a meeting of, really sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) Sorry to be so passionate. Oftentimes, a trick that I use before I go into a meeting where I am instantly intimidated by who is in the meeting or what we're going to discuss is to send a note to my board of directors or to look over the things that they've already told me of like and remind myself power pose to you know to a certain extent of I've got this and I think that's hard work in and of itself. Like there are some people who just walk into meetings and they know that they're supposed to be there. They don't have to think about preparing to be in a space, but that's not a luxury that I have in this moment. I aspire to be able to walk into spaces and be very confident, but right now I am stretching a muscle that I know is essential for me right now
0: in order to do the things that I wanna do in the future. So what is something that you would want staff at Cornell to know about in regards to working here who may be experiencing imposter syndrome? You are not alone?
3: Yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. I think it's important to be as inclusive as possible, right? I think it's very important to be intentional about language because oftentimes we mess up without even thinking something, right? Like as we, as we speak, I think sometimes that we put folks in cages or boxes without even intending to do so, right? And I think it's just... Be as inclusive as possible because you don't know how similar your story could be to the person sitting next to you. And one thing that Cynthia Saunders-Cheatham and Lynn Wooten said um, when we did an event um, at Johnson, both black women, both black women in leadership within the College of Business here at Cornell. And something that said that resonated with me is, well, if you're a black woman in the room, they're going to look at you anyway. So you might as well give them something to look at. And I was just like, Yes. Yes, yes, all the snaps, but don't right. edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and so I think in that moment where you see folks who I didn't have like who you can connect to in a variety of different ways when they say things like that, uh, well, they're gonna be looking at you anyway, so give them something to look at. I'm just like yes, I will. and there are so many moments where folks who, are trying to be helpful, say, okay, mind your P's and Q's, don't rock the boat, like you got that good job. Make sure you stay there, you know, retire from Cornell, those types of things. I'm making a little bit of a joke about my my grandma. <laughs> I'm like, you've got this great job. Make sure that you do well. I love you, Granny, if you listen to this. Um, I, incredible woman. Um, Shout out to Jess's grandma. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is a generation out there that would be very much so in agreement with Don't Rock the Boat. And as soon as Cynthia and, and Lynn said those words of give them something to look at, it just instantly sparked this thing of like, this is why we do what we do. We're we're not in this space to maintain the status quo. We're here to make change, impact change. And it's not going to sit well with everyone. It's not going to be well received by everyone. It's hard work. And that's the hard work is pushing and pushing and pushing against systemic and institutionalized processes and systems that are in place that need to be rocked, right? And so I don't know. I would just say to staff and faculty members out there, they're going to look at you anyway, so give them something to look at. Go ahead. This is your time to shine, and be as inclusive as you possibly can, because there are moments where we unintentionally put people in boxes or reinforce imposter syndrome when we're not meaning to, and so be very cognizant of, of how you show up and what language you use in certain spaces.
2: I love that. I don't have much more to say, except that Cornell needs more brave spaces to have these types of dialogues and conversations with one another. I can remember back when I first started at Cornell, as a new employee here, you feel like nobody else feels the Mm -hmm. way that you feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if we kind of like broke that down and remove that stigma and like help people like feel like they're not alone, Mm -hmm. that they belong, that there's other people here that feel the same way.
1: Hopefully, this podcast, you know, we've talked about a lot of things, but hopefully that begins to really dismantle or at least start the conversation is what I like to tell people with the mm-hmm, podcast, mm-hmm. that these this isn't the end-all, be-all. This is just the start of a conversation with a couple guests mm-hmm. who have experience in this topic and hopefully it continues to be something that, you know, this tool, this podcast can serve as a resource for other people to know, as uh, as Jen said, that you are not alone. Yeah. yeah,
2: and it's not its not just us. It's not just staff. During the um, belonging at Cornell launch, I was paired with a person I didn't know mm-hmm. because I followed the rules. I did too. <laughs> Hi, Don. And um, <laughs> it was a professor, and he and I got talking. He actually mentioned imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. how he was feeling that here at Cornell. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at him. I'm, like, what? you're an accomplished mm-hmm. professor mm-hmm. and a researcher, and you've published and you, and yet he's feeling mm-hmm. this as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are not alone. No, absolutely.
1: Thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment and like us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or all three, to let people know about this podcast. Also, if you or a fellow colleague would like to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, please email us at ie-academy at cornell.edu. My name is Anthony Sis.
0: My name is Toral Patel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. A special shout out and thank you to Bert Odom-Reed, our sound engineer from Cornell Broadcast Studio, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode.
1: Thank, thank you, Bert. Bert.